this evening. We come after many delays and postponements to this little book of Malachi. And I propose this evening to simply cover the introduction and then the date and authorship over which there are a certain number of difficulties. Malachi is a small book amongst the other books of the Old Testament. But as is so often the case, its size is not indicative of either its value or its significance. It is a true conclusion to the Old Testament and a final preparation for the coming of Christ and of the New Testament. It is no mere accident that in the closing verses of this little book we have two of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament mentioned, Moses and Elijah, representative of the law and the prophets respectively. Moses has always represented all the law, the first five books of the Bible. And Elijah has always, in Jewish tradition, represented all the prophets, both what we call the former and the latter prophets. And there is a sense in which these two prophets, Moses and Elijah, symbolize the whole Old Testament era. So it is not just a coincidence that in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4 you have the mention first of Moses and then of Elijah. And if you turn up to Luke chapter 9 and verse 28, uh, you will discover in the story of the transfiguration that it was Moses and Elijah who are there on the Mount of Transfiguration talking with the Lord Jesus. Now I wonder whether uh, you have ever asked yourself the question that I used to ask myself when I was uh, much younger, first saved. Um, why was it that Moses and Elijah were given this tremendous privilege of coming back, as it were, from the glory to speak with the Lord Jesus. And there's evidently some very great and real significance here. Why, for instance, were not some of the other prophets um, brought in? Why wasn't it? Well, I think we would all agree that Moses uh, had a right to be there, but why not Isaiah? Why Elijah? We haven't got a book. Of Elijah. Isaiah's got a large uh, portion of the Old Testament attributed to him. But you see, it is because these two prophets symbolize and represent the whole Old Testament era. They always have done. Um, in the Lord's time they did, and they have done ever since, in Jewish tradition. These two great men, Moses and Elijah, and it is very interesting that it says uh, in verse 30, Behold, there talked with him two men, who are Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory 
and spake of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Isn't that wonderful? Well, uh, this is an aside, but uh, to me, uh, it is simply amazing that here we have Moses and Elijah, and they're talking all about, really, what they dimly saw and foreshadowed. Moses, in all the law that he gave to the people, in all the offerings and the sacrifices, from the Passover down to the minutest detail, was now talking with the Lord Jesus about his exodus, which he was going to accomplish. And I can just, oh, if only we had the record of what was said. Can you just imagine the conversation that must have taken place? What was their conversation? What did they talk about when Moses spoke with the Lord about the Lord's exodus, which he was to accomplish? I just wonder how they discussed it. Now Moses said, well, isn't that marvelous? You know, it's just absolutely the Passover, fulfilled in every detail. Or maybe there were other things, but we're told on the authority of the three witnesses who saw it, that Moses spoke of um, the exodus, the Lord's exodus, which he was to accomplish at Jerusalem. And then also Elijah. Elijah represents all the prophets. And I can only imagine some of the conversation that took place with Elijah and the Lord Jesus as he also spoke of the way the Lord was going to fulfill in detail what the prophets had only dimly foretold. But here you have it. And when we come to the little book of um, Malachi, we have these two men, Moses and Elijah, in the closing verses. I say it is no mere accident. Uh, it is there by design, because these two do in fact symbolize the whole of the Old Testament period. Malachi is the last of the twelve minor prophets. He is the last of the three, um, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And he is also the final book of the Old Testament canon. So there is a sense in which Malachi is conclusive. He concludes the twelve, he concludes the ministry of the three, and he concludes the whole canon of the Old Testament. It is God's last and final word under the Old Covenant before the coming of Christ. It's just here that uh, a very real and solemn importance for us lies. For there is no doubt whatsoever that this little book speaks not only of Christ's first advent, but of his second advent also. By the very way in which this book is interpreted in the New Testament, as well as by its own clear uh, clearly stated words, we discover that this book has a twofold message to those at the end of the previous age, which uh, blossomed into the first coming of Christ, 
and those at the end of the second age, which will blossom into the second coming of Christ. That is why, for instance, the little prophecy concerning Elijah, who is to come, we are told by the Lord Jesus that this has been in one sense fulfilled in John the Baptist. But you will also notice that in this prophecy it is before that great and terrible day of the Lord come. And there is a sense in which it looks off to the end of this age in which you and I are found. So, you see, this book has a living message for God's people then and now, and we therefore ought to take heed to its cry. Malachi has much to say about things prevalent both then and now. Not only about a powerless form of godliness, uh, or about blemished service and corrupted worship. You see, Malachi points to this terrible thing that was beginning to take place, which in the end was to produce produce both Pharisaism and Sadduceeism, this form of godliness which denies the power thereof, a powerless godly, form of godliness. Outwardly, it was perfect, as the Lord Jesus described it, a whited sepulchre wherein lies dead men's bones. So you see, here you have a description within this book of something which um, grieves the Lord. Uh, somehow or other amongst his people, there was a form of godliness, but there wasn't the power within it. In other words, there was the profession, but not the experience. It was nominal and not practical. A form of the thing which could deceive, which was apparent, but which was not actual and factual. Now, you see, here is something which Malachi takes hold of. This is the word of God through Malachi. He takes hold of this form which hasn't got the power. Again, we have spoken of blemished service and corrupted worship. Again, we have to say, you see, that in the days of Malachi, there was blemished service. What do we mean by blemished service? Well, you see, the service was, if you wanted to serve the Lord then, you had to do it through the offerings and the sacrifices and the tithes. Well, it wasn't, now mark you, it wasn't that the people of God were not keeping the law. They were keeping the law. But you see, when they had ten sheep, and they saw one that had a dreadful ulcer, they said, now that one can be the time. Or if they had something, you see, as it were, uh, nine-tenths of it was better, the last tenth was the worst, that went into the house of the Lord. It was the blemished thing that was offered. So the priests, whose job, if you remember, was to inspect each animal that was brought in to see that it was without spot or blemish were turning a blind eye on all kinds of things that marred and spoiled 
They were receiving them and offering them to the Lord. It was blemished service. It was corrupted worship. Because this was the worship of God's people under the Old Covenant. If I wanted to worship the Lord, I offered a burnt offering. But here there was something that was corrupt. It was not acceptable to God. Do you understand? This describes the days in which Malachi ministered. Again, it wasn't only these things, but it was a moral laxity and compromise. It had become quite fashionable, evidently, to divorce and to marry foreign women. How exactly the practice grew up, we don't know whether it was a carryover from the dispersion, the exile, or how it came about, we do not know. But it is one of the things that Malachi attacks more than anything else, that this divorce question had spread throughout the nation, throughout the people, throughout the remnant. Now he's not talking of those in the exile, those who've remained in Babylon, he's talking of those who've gone back, that faithful and godly remnant. And I must also remind you to, that, that divorce was permissible under God's law. But here there was a perversion of divorce under the old covenant. Uh, they, men were putting away for their wives for no reason at all in order that they might marry foreign women. And this marriage to foreign women meant often rights connected with those women's religion. So you see here you have moral laxity and compromise. And then another thing that Malachi attacks is tardiness in giving. This always, of course, is a symptom of spiritual lukewarmness. And there was tardiness in giving. It was not only that they gave the poor, but evidently the whole tithe was not coming in. You see? The whole tithe was not coming in. So, so Malachi has to appeal to them, command them to bring the whole tithe into the house of the Lord. And then see whether God will not open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that you will not be able to contain it. There was a tardiness, a meanness in the giving of God's children. And perhaps the worst thing of all was that there was a refusal to put first things first. Now these were the things that um, that Malachi, uh, as it were, was facing. And yet, and we must, um, we must underline this, these things that we have mentioned are descriptive in many ways of the day in which we live as well. It is very interesting that the Laodicean church has always been taken as a picture of the church at the end, in its lukewarmness in its neither being hot nor cold, in its wealth, in its prosperity, in its own honour, and so on. And here you have the same kind of picture in Malachi's day and in our day. Because we must make no, we must make no uh, bones about it. Uh, today, the most common thing in Christendom is this form of godliness which denies the power thereof. 
nominal Christianity. It has the words, it has the doctrines by and large, it has the name, it has the procedure, it's taken over the ceremonies and rites, but the power is absent. It is in the head and not in the heart. It is a form, but like a whited sepulchre, it looks beautiful without, it looks perfect without, spotless and clean, and yet within, it's death. It's dead. The motive may be all right, there may be sincerity, but the whole point is, all it can produce is a form of godliness, which has not got that dynamic of God within. Now, you see, this is the thing, as I say, that this little book speaks to. Uh, again, we must also say that in our day there is blemished service and corrupted worship. And I'm not speaking just of other places. I'm speaking of all of us here and elsewhere who own the name of Christ. Blemished service. Oh, the blemished service of Christendom. What we offer to the Lord, that which he refuses to accept, and yet so often we think we're doing God such a great service. It's blemished service. It's corrupted worship. Yes, it's not worship in spirit and in truth, but it is a, a worship that's, that's got all the uncrucified natural man in it. So it's corrupt. It's corrupt. Now, uh, corrupted worship doesn't just mean something which is uh, sinful uh, and wicked in the sense of something that is drunken or dishonest. It means something which is mixed. It's corrupted. It's impure. Instead of it being worship in the spirit and in the truth, something else has got into it. It has bypassed the cross. That's all. Service which has bypassed Calvary. Worship which has bypassed Calvary and got somehow into the house of God. Blemished service, corrupted worship, moral laxity and compromise. I don't suppose there has ever been a day when there has been such moral laxity amongst Christians. Oh, if you only knew some of the stories that we hear continually amongst Christians. Oh, the, 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 the dropping of moral standards, the compromise that has come in. In a sense, it's partly due, of course, to the, to the surroundings in which we live, to the way in which this thing has encroached upon us. And Christians are so afraid of being narrow now, so afraid of being bigoted, so afraid of being thought to be sort of all pie, that somehow or other this, this thing has crept right in and everywhere. You ask, you ask any pastor, you ask any minister, what is his great problem at present? You'll find what it is. Moral laxity and compromise. Tardiness in giving. Well, I don't have to say much about that. It's obvious by all the appeals that are continually being made 
and the, the missionaries that we hear of uh, in so many cases. We heard of one only the other day, nothing even to clothe their children's feet with, nothing to clothe their children with from quite a big wealthy church. Tardiness in giving. It's apparent. And does anyone argue the fact that today is a day when there is a refusal, if not outward, certainly inwardly, to put first things first. Now this little book speaks to this situation. This is the kind of situation found amongst God's people. But you know, it's not just a merely to these things that this little book speaks. It speaks upon much deeper issues of which all these things are but the symptoms. And those deeper issues, which are the main theme of this little book, are all bound up with two well-known phrases in the Old Testament. The covenant of the Lord and the name of the Lord. And it is in touching these two things that Malachi puts his finger upon all these symptoms and says, here you are, this is the diagnosis of God. This is the root trouble that is breaking out in all these, uh, as it were, rashes uh, in the church under the old covenant, and I'm afraid too, under the new. Now if you will just take your Bible and the book of Malachi, I would like to just um, point out those verses in which we have either the mention of the covenant of the law or the name of the law. First of all, we'll take the covenant of the Lord. Malachi 2, <coughs> chapter 4. Ye shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant may be with Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. Verse 5, my covenant was with him of life and peace, and I gave them to him that he might fear. Verse 8, but ye are turned aside out of the way, ye have caused many to stumble in the law, ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. And then verse 10, have we not all one father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother, profaning the covenant of our fathers? And then in chapter 3 and verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant whom ye desire, behold, he cometh, saith the Lord of hosts. And then again, take the name of the Lord. <coughs> Malachi chapter 1, 
verse 6. A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is mine honour? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priests, that despise my name. And then verse 11. For from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the Gentiles, saith the Lord of hosts. Verse 14, last part of the verse. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is terrible among the Gentiles. Chapter 2, verse 2. Um, <clears throat> if ye will not hear, and if ye will not lay it to heart to give glory unto my name, saith the Lord of hosts. Verse 5. Um, last part of the verse. And he feared me and stood in awe of my name. Chapter 3 and verse 16. Then they that feared the Lord spake one with another, and the Lord hearkened and heard, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord, and that thought upon his name. Chapter 4 and verse 2. And um, But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in its wings. Now what is the point that Malachi is trying to make? What is it in fact that the Lord is saying through Malachi? He is saying this, God has brought us into a covenant relationship with himself. And by the blood of the covenant, he has given us the right to his name. He has named us with his own name. Now later on in these studies we shall be looking a little further at this. But this evening let it suffice to say this. That in these two, these two subjects, the covenant of the Lord and the name of the Lord, you have the whole Old Testament encompassed. The covenant of the Lord, what does it speak of? Salvation. What does it speak of? Relationship to God. What does it speak of? Marriage to God. What does it speak of? Service. Function. A covenant relationship. If you look right the way through the whole Old Testament, you'll be surprised at the amount there is about the covenant of the Lord. The, the weight that is put upon this whole matter of the covenant. God has made a covenant through blood. Well, if you come to the New Testament, of course, you will see immediately its significance when you see that the Lord Jesus spoke of his blood in connection with the covenant. This is the new covenant in my So, I mean, really, when you think of it, this word covenant is tremendous. 
No wonder the Puritans made so much of the covenant of God, of being a covenanted people with the Lord. But you see, that's one side. Now there's another side. And it's the name of the Lord. What does the name of the Lord mean? Well, it speaks of, of security. In the name of the Lord we can do warfare. In the name of the Lord we can be safe. In the name of the Lord, we can find a refuge. In the name of the Lord, we can find something that will set us up, will support us. Oh, the Old Testament is full of this side to the name of the Lord. But it's much more than that. The name of the Lord speaks not only of security, but it speaks too of dwelling. Where, where the place which I shall cause my name to dwell. The Lord's always made a lot of his name as a place which we, as, as it were, in which we gather the name of the Lord, a gathering place. Uh, of course, in the New Testament, again, it's explained very simply where two or three are gathered together into my name, there am I, in the midst of them. If you shall ask anything in my name, that will I do. It, it's the, it's the, as it were, the, it signifies the body. The fact that you and I are part of Christ and we share the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord. But of course it speaks also of the purpose of God, therefore, and not only that, but the honor of the Lord. And so we could go on, and we could go on, and we could go on. But you see, these two, these two matters, the covenant and the name, the covenant that God has made with us to bring us into what he is, so that we might share his name. Here, then, is the whole range of God's purpose. Covenant by blood, by death and by blood. Put it in New Testament language. Covenant by a broken body and a and poured out blood. And then what? Incorporation into Christ. Well, now you see it is this that, that thrills through this little book. And all the, all the sin and all that is departure, all that is shortcoming, is related to the covenant of the Lord. And to the name of the Lord. It is seen in some ways, perhaps in our eyes, in the dead, in its darkest colour. Because it is a despising of the Lord's name. It is an abusing of the Lord's covenant. These things, tardiness in giving. It's, it's connected with the name. It's connected with the covenant. Not putting first things first. Malachi takes it back to this, the name of the Lord and the covenant. And all these other things, moral laxity and compromise, a form of godliness and not the reality within, it's all brought back to this matter of the covenant of the Lord and the name of the Lord. Now this book is addressed to all, both priests and people, who in so many ways 
were dishonoring, abusing, or contradicting uh, the name and the covenant of God. And yet, and here we must underline what we're going to say, and yet, supremely, this little book's message is to those who fear his name. And that doesn't mean who are in terror of his name, but those who reverence it. They have understood its meaning. They have entered into the good of it. And they reverence it above all else. Those who fear his name. And to those who fear his name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. Yes, again, go back, go back to the third chapter, verse 16, and those that thought upon his name. So if you think upon his name, you'll come to fear his name. If you think upon the name of the Lord, you will come to reverence the name of the Lord. It's not just the name of Christ. It's not just some name of a person, but there's much more to it. And you've begun to understand something of it. And this little book, it addresses itself supremely to those who fear his name. A small remnant indeed. Now, here's an amazing thing. The prophets have failed. The kings have ceased altogether. They, they have the, the prophets are silent, and the kings have failed, and they've ceased altogether. The priests are corrupted. There is a form of godliness everywhere apparent which denies un that the power thereof, the scriptures are there, the doctrine is there, the teaching is there, the observance is there, but the heart is gone. And in these days, of dismal failure and departure, there is a small and seemingly insignificant remnant who love the Lord, who know the Lord, and who cling to one another in fellowship because they fear His name. And that little remnant becomes, I love the authorized version here, the jewels of the Lord in the day when I act. Well, this uh, version, the Revised Standard Version, puts it like this. They will be my special possession. Now, the word, the Hebrew word here, is a very interesting word. It means a special treasure or property. A special treasure or property. The word is almost elect. Chosen. Choice. Choice. 
There, there is something behind it of a, of a determined will that has selected it because it wants it. See? And this little, scattered, weak remnant of people who have fought upon the name of the Lord and have feared it and have clung to one another in fellowship, these become, as the hymn puts it, a royal diadem in the hand of our God. They become an especial treasure in his hand, something special, something that belongs to him, his own property, his own special possession. It's very hard, quite to put it, I think, possibly, that the authorised version has got nearer in the end to the idea behind it than any other version. Jewel. Something that is unique, something which is peculiar, something which is particular, something in many ways which is not like the rest. Isn't it interesting? And uh, this little remnant has become uh, the very vindication of God. Now, of course, uh, if you read on in Malachi, you find that when the Son of Righteousness, and it is interesting again, the phrase that is used, used nowhere else, in the Old Testament, the Son of Righteousness, when it arises, well, to them, it has healing in its wings. But to the great sprawling tree of Judaism, it has a deadly burning way, which burns it and shrivels it until... It is destroyed into ashes. As you've got it in the last chapter. The sun does two things. It heals the little remnant and it destroys the great institution. And so too, it's going to be at the end of this dispensation as well. A great universal Christendom, in which all has failed in God's eyes, not in men's eyes, but which, or in which all has failed in God's eyes, although outwardly the form of godliness is apparent, and perhaps much else as well that is commendable, and somehow has the appearance of goodness and rightness. This too will be destroyed by the appearance of the Son of Righteousness, the messenger of the covenant. But to that godly and saved remnant within Christendom, and there are such all over this globe, in all kinds of things, to that saved and godly remnant. His appearance will be healing and triumph and glory. Well now, that's really just a little introduction to the book of Malachi. Uh, one, or other two thi one or two other things in a general introductory way. 
first of all, the style of the book. What is the style of this book? It's simple, direct, and vigorous. And it depends upon plain, matter-of-fact reasoning rather than poetic and fiery eloquence. The whole book is in prose, no poetry, and has been put together with some skill. Its structure, and this is interesting, is somewhat peculiar, uh, being more argumentative than other Old Testament books. Now I'll explain that. You see, this little book begins with uh, stating something and then raises some objection or question. Then it, it answers the objection and question by elaborating on what it first said. Now this has given rise to some very interesting and somewhat fanciful um, theories. One is that Malachi's ministry was in fact an open-air ministry and that uh, he first um, preached these messages out in the open and was heckled. And here you've got some of the questions uh, in which he says, oh, well, you say so-and-so. And he answers them, and you get this, this plain, vigorous, direct dialogue all the time. You say, all right. You get first the statement of something, uh, a question or an objection, and then, uh, in answering that question of objection, the original statement is really explored and explained. Well, I think that's probably fanciful. But certainly this little phrase, yet, you, yet ye say, as it's in the revised and the authorised version, is everywhere in this book. Now take it, and we'll just look very swiftly. It's such a small book. First of all, chapter 1, verse 2, Yet ye say, wherein, or as the Revised Standard Version puts it, Yet you, you but you say, how. And then uh, verse 6, um, No, I can't. Verse 6. Yes, I'm sorry. And ye say, wherein have we despised his name? Sorry. Verse 7. And ye say, wherein have we polluted thee? Verse 12. But ye profane in that ye say, the table of the Lord is polluted. Uh, verse 13. Ye say also, behold, what a weariness it is. Chapter 2. Verse 14. Yet ye say, wherefore? And then verse 17, ye have wearied the Lord with your words, yet ye say, wherein have we wearied him? Uh, chapter 3, verse 7, um, but ye say, last part of verse, but ye say, wherein shall we return? Verse 8, will a man rob God, yet ye rob me, but ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? Uh, verse 13, your words have been stout against me, says the Lord, yet ye say, what have we spoken against thee? Verse 14. Ye have said, it is vain. 
to serve God. This is quite remarkable. There's no other book that has uh, quite this structure built upon a statement and then an argument, uh, an objection or a question, and then uh, an explanation being given of the original statement. It's also noteworthy that a very different kind of speaking one to another is mentioned and pointed out in this little book. And that's what we have already read in chapter 3 and verse 16. I think it is noteworthy. Uh, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. Because if you read it in its context, verse 13 to 15, you will discover that particular argument is never answered. As if Malachi is simply saying, all right, if you want to murmur, if you want to criticize, if you want to argue, go on. But there are, there's another kind of talking with one another. And it is those who fear the Lord who spoke with one another, and the Lord listened to them, and he, um, he's recorded them, and what they have said. I think it's Campbell Morgan who has said that there is no greater joy to the Lord than to join two or three saints when they talk about him. And he just sits and listens, and every word is not forgotten. Um, it is interesting anyway, this dialogue style, this kind of conversational style, afterwards became the universal style in Judaism. From Malachi onwards, this became the style of the synagogues and the schools of Judaism. One other point that might possibly amuse you, I don't know, it's interesting, uh, that in the synagogue service to this very day, when Malachi is read by instruction, when uh, you come to chapter 4 and verse 6, to avoid ending the reading with a curse, you read verse 5 again. <laughs> and in so doing, end with a promise. I, I thought this was rather amazing because it does show human nature. Uh, even amongst Christians, there are many people who don't like anything that talks of the judgment of the Lord, you see. And uh, well, the Jews have got right round that one, and uh, rather than end the service the with the reading, when it's a set reading, you see, in the synagogue, you read verse 5 after verse 6. Verse 5 you read first, then 6, and then you go back to verse 5 and end on that happier note. The New Testament quotes Malachi a number of times. Now, what can we say about the question of authorship and date? I know that this is a technical matter, but I feel we've got to face it once more, because later on it will help us in our understanding of the message of this book. What do we know about authorship and date? Well, now, most scholarship, even liberal, does not doubt the genuineness of this prophecy, nor its unity. But over its authorship and date, there has been much and long-standing discussion. Apart from this book, 
We know nothing about the author whatsoever. And the mystery deepens because the book itself gives us next to no information about him personally. And then, as if to um, baffle us yet further, in this particular book, his very name is a problem. The word Malachi means my messenger or my angel. And so it is, and, and as it is nowhere else used in the whole of Scripture, nor outside of Scripture, it is a name unknown to tradition or to jury. The idea has arisen with some ground that it may be a title and not a name at all. Now, of course, naturally, most people who believe in the inspiration and authority of the Scripture start to look horrified uh, at the moment anything like this is raised. But you see, listen. Listen to what the Septu how the Septuagint version, which is the earliest translation of the Hebrew in existence. It translates it like this. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by the hand of his messenger. By the hand of his messenger. Now, this is, this, is a, this is quite remarkable. It seems somewhat odd. If there was at that early date, when the Septuagint translation was made, if there was at that early date a general recognition of a prophet called Malachi. It is even more strange since this prophet lived nearer to the translation of the, uh, translation of the Septuagint, or translation that we call the Septuagint version, than any other prophet. It is therefore surely uh, somewhat odd that these translators if it was generally known that there was a prophet called Malachi, could possibly have translated the Hebrew uh, in this way, not as a name, but as a noun. Now, uh, this is only the beginning of a mystery, and um, I'm going to say straight away that whilst uh, I believe it's honest to face the whole problem, I don't think we shall have an answer for it. Um, probably leave you more baffled. In the Targum, uh, and the Targum is the Jewish Aramaic paraphrase and commentary of the Bible, it's a very early um, uh, translation again, but it's more than a translation, it's a paraphrase of the, of the Hebrew scripture into Aramaic with a little commentary. This little addition is found, which being early is interesting. In translating Malachi, paraphrasing it, we find this, the burden of the word of the Lord by Malachi, whose name is called Ezra the scribe. Whose name is called Ezra the scribe. This reveals that the rabbis took Malachi as an honorary title. In other words, it was like satrap, governor, or some of the other titles, uh, the messenger. It was an actual title. Uh, 
it seems from the Targum anyway that it was an honorary title and it was a title given to Ezra the scribe. He was called his messenger. Messenger of the Lord. Ezra the scribe. Now there have been others who have ascribed the authorship of this book to Ezra, notably Jerome, who translated uh, uh, um, the scriptures into the Latin. And also, and this is interesting, Calvin. Uh, Calvin did not believe that there was such a person as, uh, as uh, Malachi. In fact, he believed that this book was written by Ezra the scribe. There are other traditions which ascribe it to Zerubbabel, Haggai, Nehemiah, and Mordecai, two Jewish traditions. It can therefore be seen that the uncertainness about the name Malachi is very long-standing indeed. Most of the church fathers, nearly all the early rabbis, the Septuagint, and many since regard this book as anonymous. The New Testament never quotes him by name once. Some scholars also point out that the phrase, the burden of the word of the Lord, is a unique phrase to three places in Scripture. Zechariah chapter to 9 verse 1 Zechariah chapter 12 verse 1 and Malachi chapter 1 verse 1 these scholars believe that all three are anonymous prophecies appended to Zechariah and that the last one came to be called my messenger because of the word Malachi in chapter 3 verse 1 Behold, I send my messenger. You know, no one's ever thought of translating that. Behold, I send Malachi. Uh, behold, I send my messenger. So they thought that this seems to be the key to this little prophecy. It came in the end to be called Malachi, my messenger. Well, well, well. Um, I think it's only fair, however, to say that there have been many others who look upon uh, the name Malachi as a proper name, albeit strange, it's strange in meaning for a name, and strange even amongst Jewish names, and strange in construction. Nevertheless, or though it's strange, they believe it is a proper name, pointing out that in every other prophetic book, it, it is named in essentially the same way as this one. And that it would be very strange indeed if this should be translated differently. In other words, it is, it is clear from the way indeed that it's come to us through all the various versions except the Septuagint that uh, it would seem that naturally by its construction it is a name. And yet it's such a strange name. It's such a strange construction. So the only alternative is to see it as, a, as an honorary name or as an honorary title. Uh, that doesn't explain the authorship. So here we have to leave the matter of authorship. Uh, was there a prophet named Malachi? Well, one day we shall know. Uh, when we're in the glory, we shall either meet Malachi there or we won't. 
but down here um, there does not seem as if there is going to be an easy answer to this question and uh, we cannot really be dogmatic. Now what about the date? Well the date gives us nearly as much difficulty in some ways as the name, not quite as much. The book of Malachi is not dated and it is therefore not possible to be dogmatic about its exact date. The internal evidence of the book suggests a date which is post-exilic, that is, some time after the return to Babylon. The temple has been rebuilt. We're told that the Lord is going to suddenly appear in his temple. We're, to we're told that its services are functioning. All the tithes are being brought in. The sacrifices are being The Levites uh, uh, and priestly um, orders are all in operation. Um, the, I've already mentioned the sacrifices. They're being offered. All this points to a post-exilic date, but more than a post-exilic date. It, post, it points to a date not earlier than 516, because that was the point at which the temple was Re was completed. So we can say that um, we cannot place the book of Malachi earlier than 516. It is sometime after 516 that we have got to find um, its position in history. Now are there any other things that we can discover? Well, there is the reference to the governor in chapter 1 and verse 8. And that term is a wholly post-exilic term. It was never used before the exile, only after. You remember Zerubbabel was called the governor, Nehemiah was called the governor. And uh, you have a reference, a clear reference to the governor there. It is also rather interesting that it speaks of presenting these things to the governor. And in Nehemiah, you will discover that he has said that in his whole term of office, he refused to accept anything from the people. This has led some, again, I'll tell you in a moment, to, 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 it is, to some it has been a pointer. Are there anything else? Well, now, these considerations reveal a date subsequent to Haggai and Zechariah after the completion of the temple, 516. The general disorders described within this book, which we have mentioned, corruption of the priesthood, mixed marriages, um, the question of the tithes not being brought in wholly, and so on, um, would seem to suggest a time before Ezra and Nehemiah's drastic reform especially on mixed marriages. Do you remember, Ezra, how he stood up and he commanded that the people should divorce their foreign wives and get rid of them? Um, so some would say, now look, this points, this, uh, this, these conditions point to a time before Ezra or Nehemiah, somewhere here. And um, uh, such would uh, date... Uh, this little book of Malachi 
at approximately 460 BC. Somewhere between Zerubbabel and Ezra. Nearer Ezra. Others would place this book in Nehemiah's day. Not here, but here. Um, because they say, and again, I'm only giving you the facts, you'll have to make up your own minds on this. Um, they say that the conditions described by Malachi fit Nehemiah's time perfectly. Look at um, Nehemiah chapter 13. Now, this is interesting, I must say. You'd have to read the whole chapter. But um, if you were to look through it, you will discover in Nehemiah chapter 13 that all three of the matters that are mentioned in Malachi are here. First of all, there is the tithes, chapter 10 to 14. There is intermarriage, chapter 23 to the end, almost to the end of the chapter. There's the profaning of the Sabbath, and then we find, too, um, uh, that the offerings are wrong. All these things are here. Payment of tithes, mixed marriages, and so on. Now, some other scholars would say, here we have at the end of the book of Nehemiah a perfect description of the conditions which Malachi describes and prophesied against. These would place this book between Nehemiah's two terms of governorship. He had two terms in office. The first from 445, and we don't know to when it was to. Then he went back to Persia, he was recalled, and he was back for quite some years, and then he returned, uh, probably about 430 or something like that, uh, for a further period. Now they would place the book of Malachi somewhere between those two periods. And they would say that um, uh, here you have um, the book of Malachi. Now, if that is so, he was a pardon, he was a contemporary to Nehemiah of Nehemiah, and what Haggai and Zechariah had been to Zerubbabel and Joshua, then Malachi or whoever the prophet was, uh, was to Nehemiah and Ezra. Well, now then, they would place it generally approximately 433 B.C. And yet there are still others who would place Malachi later, pointing to certain facts. Now, these facts are not to be uh, just despised. They're, they're, they're interesting. The first is, even after the zeal and reforms of Ezra and Nehemiah, certain corruptions existed alongside correct outward observance. Now they point to Nehemiah 13 and say, look, after that trem the tremendous reforming zeal of Ezra, you've still got mixed marriages. 
And you've got the son-in-law of the high priest married to a foreign wife. After all that. So they say, here you've got the thing. It's gone underground. And uh, there are many other things they would point to. The second fact they would say is this. These disorders are not those of an afflicted and poorer people, but they are typical disorders of a comparatively prosperous, secure, and stable community. They therefore say that after uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, that's just the kind of period that the remnant uh, entered a more prosperous era, a more secure era, and a more stable era. And all these things, moral laxity and compromise, uh, despising the offerings, uh, and so on, uh, not putting first things first, tardiness in giving, are often linked not with poverty, but with prosperity. And then again, the third thing, and this is a fact, it is more than strange that the prophet or his work are nowhere mentioned in the history of those earlier days. Nehemiah more or less mentions everyone, Ezra and Nehemiah mention nearly everyone in connection with their work, and yet, not these. Haggai and Zechariah are mentioned in connection with the work of Zerubbabel, but not Malachi. So there are others who would place Malachi somewhere in the period after Nehemiah's governorship. And they would usually say anywhere between 430 or 420 and 350. This period here. More or less here. Well now you see... um, what can we conclude upon the matter of date and authorship? Um, as far as authorship goes, we, we are not able to dogmatically say um, that Malachi was a person. There was someone who wrote the book of Malachi. Uh, whether Malachi was his name or whether it was his title is open to question. And the interesting thing is that scripture itself is silent on it, and we have no leading from any other source. So we have to have an open mind. We know the book has come through the Holy Spirit, but um, this one we call Malachi, and it's quite right to call him Malachi, that was his honorary title, if not his proper name. Um, uh, We do not know anything about him. What about the date? Well, uh, the most dogmatic we can be is to say that it is probable that the book of Malachi must be placed between 460 and 350. 110 years. Somewhere between that we can say that we must place this book. I think it's possible that the evidence is weighted on a date later than Nehemiah, but we have to say that much scholarship would place it earlier, either in Nehemiah's day or just before Ezra's. 
Well, there we are. We've we've uh, we've come to the book of Malachi, and and uh, well, these other considerations in the end recede because the great thing about this little book is that it speaks in a timeless way, in one sense, to those who really have understood the name of the Lord and the covenant of God and have entered into the good of it all and are related one to another simply through experience by the one name and the one covenant, they have entered into a relationship not only with God, the Lord, but with one another. This little book, therefore, has a message to all such. And uh, we want to be, I am sure, all of us, numbered amongst such a company. Now, this book of Malachi will have some hard and searching things to say uh, about uh, whether we will be included in such a company because we belong to some company or some group will not mean in God's eyes that we would be in such a ground. And in the end, it is this which gives to Malachi solemnity. It deals with something, in a sense, on the verge of its happening. That's why it's so solemn and grave. Because it points out something which we, looking back, can see in the end came to pass. And you know, when the Son of Righteousness did arise, well, the book of Malachi was fulfilled in detail. The forerunner went before him. The herald is coming. And where was this? this weak and dispersed remnant. Well, they're a tiny little group. We have Simeon and Anna, and uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth, and Joseph and Mary. We have some shepherds. We have three wise men. And we have some others, upon whom the Son of Righteousness rose with healing in his wings. Right through his ministry, yes, there were just those, that remnant that were being brought to him. Many offended, many turned away, many went back. At the end of his ministry, only 120. And yet, you see, the book of Malachi, the book of Malachi spoke to this condition Four centuries before it came to pass, with a living message that kept alive 
a spark of divine life in a few, all the way through those centuries, through the Maccabean period, right the way on down to the Herodian period and to the coming of the Messiah. And so it is with us. Oh, there may be centuries yet to run. It might be that we're on the verge of the coming of the Lord. This book has a message. And its message is to the great, great majority in this vast, sprawling, institutionalized Christianity. And its message is to all who own his name about things that perhaps we shall be ashamed to find in every one of our lives, which would uh, veto our being in such a remnant when he comes. Now that's solemn and it's grave, but that's what this little book's about. And that's why you and I ought to go away and read these chapters again, and again, and again, and again. Prayerfully asking the Holy Spirit to show us something of its meaning, to prepare us to understand it, and above all, to give us a heart which thinks upon his name till it fears and reverences it, so that it comes to a real experience of all his purpose. Shall we pray?